0: So we are wrapping up our series this morning on uh, the hard sayings of Jesus. Uh, last week, Professor Will, after circumnavigating the high waters, the treacherous uh, downpour, uh, he finally found dry passage, and was able to walk through the Sermon on the Mount with some commentary to point out some of Jesus' more difficult teachings there. Uh, prior to that, we talked about Jesus and when he said, Some of you who say, Lord, Lord, will not enter the kingdom, and so that's a a scary thought, scary phrase that we looked at. Um, We talked about how Jesus said we had to eat his flesh and drink his blood to take part in the kingdom or be his, Uh, how he said you have to be perfect as he is perfect, and we also, I think, started, I can't even read my writing here. Uh, oh, with no one knows the day or the hour. Yeah, uh, it made sense when I wrote it. Uh, no one knows the day or the hour when he will return, not even the son. And so we kicked off the series with that. And uh, wrapping up this morning in Luke chapter 14, which uh, I think will be, a, I guess, a fitting close to the series. I had planned for this ser- sermon to be last week on Mother's Day because it talks about hating your mom. Uh, so I thought, oh, that'd be kind of funny, but um, God was like, not so fast. Here's a intestinal illness to sideline that message. Um, but we'll be in Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 33 this morning. <clears throat> it says, now great crowds accompanied him, being Jesus, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish." If we don't hate our mother, father, wife, children, brothers and sisters, and own life, we cannot be his disciples. Yes, he did say that. Uh, Well, what does that mean, right? Again, what we want to do is, I believe we've done with most of the other hard sayings, is kind of weigh that against what the rest of Scripture shows us and the character and message of Jesus that we see in the Word of God, and say, is this consistent with what we've seen? And if it's not consistent, it doesn't, doesn't mean he didn't say this, but we have to say, what is he pointing us to, or what is he trying to get at? And when we weigh this statement, this phrase, that unless you hate your mother, your father, your children, your wives, and your own selves, you cannot be my disciples, we weigh that against the full counsel of Scripture, as we say, we see uh, overwhelmingly that Jesus does not want us to hate all those people. In Mark 7, he says to honor your father and mother. We can't honor your father and mother if you're hating them. In Ephesians 5, husbands are told to love their wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So you can't hate your wife if you're loving your wife like Christ loved the church. In Mark 10, Jesus loves the children, laying hands on them, blessing them. And so then he would then turn to parents and say, hate your own children. Uh, In Matthew 5, he teaches that we're to be reconciled to our brothers, and so he can't mean that we're to hate them if we're to be reconciled to them. No, the very consistent and overwhelming message from Jesus is that we're to love our families, we're to love our neighbors, we're to love uh, even ourselves, and as Jesus has said, love our enemies which this might even be the most controversial of the things that he had said because there was even a rabbinic tradition which allowed you to hate your enemies back then. It was like okay to say, this is my enemy and I hate them. Well, that's understandable. They're your enemy. You should hate your enemy. But Jesus, of course, would present this gospel way of life, this kingdom way of life, and say, love even your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So Jesus, what he's doing, once again, is he's using hyperbole or exaggeration to make sure people are listening, to make people go, what, what do you mean by that? What did you just really say? He's pointing out that our love and our affection for him should be uh, so great that it should supersede our love for anything else, and that second place looks like hate in comparison to our love for Jesus. In fact, in the Gospel of Matthew, we see of An interpretation or a presentation of this very teaching, and it's much more clear. He says, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. That's what Jesus is saying here in Luke. He just chose a very controversial way to present it, uh, as Jesus often did. So, this version allows for love of father and mother and son and daughter, just not to the extent that we love Jesus. So when he brings hate into the teaching and family, right, these very close relationships, uh, he's really hitting at the totality and commitment of sacrifice that following him entails. He's drawing attention to the preeminence that he commands and desires. Dietrich Bonhoeffer famously wrote in Cost of Discipleship that when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die that's all in. Paul writes about this kind of selflessness in Romans 12. He appeals to believers to present their bodies as living sacrifices. It's a very strong picture, right? What part of a sacrifice lives to see another day? None of it. All of it is consumed on the altar. And yet Paul says living sacrifices. So there's this sense in which we continue on in life, right? We're not called to physically die, some may martyr, you know, called to martyrdom, but that's not a command for every believer. As we live physically, we are to spiritually die to self and submit and surrender to God's will for our lives. We've been repurposed in Christ and we're to be totally surrendered to his will. So, Jesus is declaring that if we want to follow him, if we want to claim him, if we want to call ourselves Christians or disciples or students of Jesus, we need to be all in. C.S. Lewis wrote, Christ says, Give me all. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work. I want you. I've not come to torment your natural self, but to kill it. No half measures are any good. I don't want to cut off a branch here and a branch there. I want to have the whole tree down. I don't want to drill the tooth or crown it or stop it, but to have it out, hand over the natural self, all the desires which you think innocent, as well as the ones you think wicked, the whole outfit. And why wouldn't he? Why wouldn't Christ demand this, right? Marriage relationships ask for the same of us, right? Our whole selves. You wouldn't settle for just a part-time husband or wife. You want the entire life committed to you. Jesus is commanding all or nothing. It's like the song from the musical Oklahoma, not the one about waving wheat smelling sweet, but the one where Will Parker sings, with me it's all or nothing. Is it all or nothing with you? It can't be in between. It can't be now and then. No half and half romance will do. Your spouse shouldn't settle for less than all of you, right? Second to Jesus. So why would Jesus settle for less than all of you? Second to none. Jesus wants our first and our best, like we talked about a few weeks ago, but not only our first and best, right? Sometimes even as Christians we think, well, I've given my first and best to Jesus. Now let me get back to what I was doing. Let me get back to my plans, my goals, The things I'm working on over here, right? I gave you the first and best. I'll make do with what I have left over. God wants our first and best as a sign that nothing else is off limits. That all of ourselves are committed and surrendered to him. This is how we come to faith in Christ anyway. So it shouldn't surprise us that he continues to draw us back to this truth and this level of devotion or discipleship. What I mean by that when we come to Christ in faith this way, is that if you surrender your life to Jesus, if you've been made born again, been made new, been made spiritually alive, it's because you came to the end of yourself, right? It's this idea of I'm all in. I have nowhere else to go, as we've talked about, Peter's confession. There's no one else who has the words of eternal life, this realization, this faith that God gives us to trust in Him, that's all or nothing at salvation. And so it shouldn't surprise us that as we walk the Christian life, as we live out our salvation, that it's all in from that day forward. That's what all in meant on day one. So we shouldn't be surprised. This idea of total surrender, especially in light of Paul's exhortation to be living sacrifices, it forces us to consider what we may be clinging onto or elevating in our hearts which has now become an idol, something that we have elevated above Jesus, something that we worship in the sense that it's, we have more love for that than we do for our Lord. C.S. Lewis he mentioned all of it, right? Not just the parts we're ready to hand over, but every part of ourselves. So what does this look like, lived out? Jesus directs us toward it in this hard saying, we're to love, Right Now, we've got the converse of it here in Luke, but in Matthew, he says, if you love anyone more than me, then you're not fit to be my disciple. In Luke, it's if you don't hate everyone. What he's saying is if you don't love them less. And this is the greatest commandment, right? This tracks, again, with the rest of Scripture and what the rest of Jesus' message is towards us. The greatest commandment, he said, is to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. All of all of you, right? Everything it means to be human, everything it means to be you, everything that's wrapped up in the person of you is to be surrendered to Jesus or to love Jesus with all of that. So then it would be helpful if we could recognize a lack of love for Jesus. Not that measuring our love is needed for some kind of who loves Jesus the most contest, that's not what we're trying to get into, but we should be able to assess when our priorities and affections are out of whack. So what kind of diagnosti- diagnostics? Diagnostics?. Whoa, what kind of diagnostics can point us to where our affections are directed, other than just feeling love, right? Uh, love is not just a feeling. I think we use the same criteria that we would use for identifying idols in our lives. Who are the things, who are the people, what goals or relationships are our lives really prioritizing above Jesus? To identify these false gods in our lives, we need to consider a few things. One, what consumes our thoughts? What is it that is always in the back or front of my mind, regardless of what is going on around me? This indicates a preoccupation that should not be taking the place of Jesus as the center of our lives. You know those things that you could be totally doing something like right now. You could be in church listening to me, but in your head, there's thoughts that are circulating. And it's not just a like, oh, I forgot to, you know, turn off the oven or whatever. It's like this thought that keeps coming back, this worry or this obsession, this thing that you are devoting your mind to even in like running in the background mode, right, for computer terminology. What are those things that are always running in the background of your mind? What consumes your thoughts? Two, how do you spend your time? This includes actual, calendared, planned things, but we need to also examine our downtime and what we find ourselves constantly wishing we had more time to devote to, but don't have the time for. So first, our thoughts, second, our time, third, our money. How do I spend my money? Often our bank statements are a good indicator of what we value. What are we spending on? What are we saving for? What are we prone to putting money toward without thinking twice, like right away, like, oh, yeah, I'll throw some money at that. But other things are like, oh, well, let me pray about this investment. I don't know. I don't know if I can move any money towards that. But there's other things you're just like, oh, yeah, of course I'm going to spend money on that. Why wouldn't I? And then four, what frustrates us too easily or what are we too protective of? There are probably things in our lives that that trigger us, um, trigger our anger more quickly than others. This can be a sign that we're idolizing something. When whatever that is, when X gets messed with on the calendar or someone challenges the idea that you're clinging to, like maybe you care a little too much about that and it's this inappropriate response, right? Like a disproportionate amount of anger or upsetness. You know what that is for you. God knows what that is for you. But it's worth evaluating. to Say, maybe that's something that I love more than Jesus. Maybe that's an idol I've created in my mind. And so we consider these things. We consider our lives, our calendars, our budgets, what we obsess over. And then we drag them into the light of the gospel. We will then see a mixture of good things, bad things, neutral things, We may see security or comfort. We may see money or possessions. We may see faces of people. Maybe we see politics or social causes. We'll definitely see friends and family. And what Jesus wants us to do is to crucify all of it. Not that it's not important anymore, not that it's not a real relationship you should invest in, not that it's not a cause you should care about, but to crucify in such a way that it's an open-handed thing before Jesus. It's all surrendered to his will in our lives. And through this filter or lens of the cross and the empty tomb, this gospel that has transformed us and given us new life and new affections, we'll see evil for what it really is. Those things that we know straight away, they're like, that is is, a been commanded against, right? Like there are things in Scripture that say just don't do this. Those are obvious to us, especially in light of the gospel. We'll see those things. And we'll see things that are good, maybe good gifts, relationships, things that God has given us, job, security, comfort. These are good things, but we've turned them into ultimate things. In light of the gospel, we'll see that and we'll recognize that. Then we'll see the minor things that we've obsessed over into major things. We lay all of it down at the foot of the cross because what did Jesus just say? We have our own cross to carry. And if we're carrying a cross, that's all we can manage, right? There's not my cross and then let me me scoop up all this other stuff. It's just the cross. It's a symbol of death to self, death to our flesh, death to all the wannabe little G-gods in our lives as we pursue Jesus. The things we identified may be good gifts, but they're not ultimate. Jesus is ultimate. So we want our affection for Jesus to grow, right? That's what Jesus is telling us here, that everything in our lives that we love, we should love less than him. So our affection for him should be greater than our affection for anything else. If our love for him is to eclipse our love for our our own families and even our own selves, We need to kindle that love, cultivate that love. This is the tricky part because you can't just um, create an equation or a checklist and the product is love, right? Love is not the product of an equation or checklist. In one sense, our love is displayed through obedience. Jesus was pretty clear on this. If we love him, we'll obey what he's commanded. And so we can obey Jesus as a sign of our love for him. But the desire to commit, the desire to worship, the affection in our soul for him can only be stirred by the Holy Spirit. We can't just will more affection for Jesus into our hearts, just like we can't will more affection for our spouses or our kids or even tacos. So how do we grow love? We set the stage, right? We make room in our lives. We engage we stare at it until we see it. These things, but you you set the stage, you get the elements ready, you make it, the path clear for you, know, right? The circumstances to be right. And a soul that has been made alive by the Spirit cannot help but return to its love for Jesus because it was awakened in love for Jesus. If you're a believer in Christ, having surrendered your life to him in faith, it means you were gifted the Faith to love and follow him above everything else already. It's just a matter of de idling our hearts and redisciplining our hearts. What I mean by that is setting the stage for worship in your heart by practicing the disciplines of prayer, solitude, reading God's word, praise, fellowship with other believers, serving others and recounting God's promises and blessings in your life. Spending time enjoying him. Just as you would grow love with your relationship with another person, right? You would spend time with them. You would remind yourself of why you love them in the first place. And that's a imperfect relationship, right? That's a human, not the God man, not Jesus. And so to kindle our affection for Jesus, it's the same thing. Spend time with him. Recall his promises. Recall his works in your life. Recall his grace towards you in salvation. Spend time getting to know him. The Holy Spirit within you will resonate with the things of God when you engage them. It's the Spirit who guides us into all truth. So he's also the one who exposes our idols and our false thinking, illuminating and reminding us of our true purpose to love and to worship Jesus. Jesus, the one whom we are to love above all else, even our own lives. Let's pray. During this time of of prayer, I know it gets a little chaotic with uh, the kids coming back in and those kind of things, but to to think about what we've just talked about, to uh, begin to respond in faith, to try to drag your heart into the light of the gospel. To shine the, the light of Jesus into every, every corner, every hidden crevice of your mind and heart. The things that you think, Jesus, I, uh, I trust you and I love you, but I, I, I'm working on this part. Or I, I really don't want to give up this. Whatever that control is, whatever that obsession is, whatever that anxiety is, whatever that anger is. Pray that the Lord would, would expose that in your heart and mind, that you might, again, not, not close it behind your back when you approach the, the cross, but that you would, with open hands, palms up, offer it to Jesus. That our love for even the good gifts that he's allowed us to experience would pale in comparison to our love for him. that they would be reminders that he is good and generous and that he wants our good, but that they are not ultimate. Jesus, we pray that you would show us the things in our lives that compete for our affection The things in our lives that have been winning our affection and stealing our affection from you. The things, Jesus, that we have set on some kind of altar, maybe a throne in our hearts and minds to say, this is the most important thing. This is what I really need to be worried about. This, this I cannot trust this to you, God. Show us what those things are. Remove the illusion of control from our lives, from our hearts, from our minds. Remove the illusion of of satisfaction from the world or contentment from the world. Remind us, Jesus, that you are the only one who satisfies our soul, the only place where true hope and joy and abundant life are found. Help us, Jesus, with even the practical aspects of what we talked about this morning. To, to make space, to make room in our lives, in our budgets, in our calendars, in our hearts. To consider you, to engage with you. That we wouldn't be in a, in a halfway romance with you, Jesus. That we would be all in. God, we love you, we trust you, we thank you. Thank you for calling us to yourself, for giving us new life, for covering our sin and giving us your righteousness, Jesus. I pray that the lives that we live would point others to you as well. That we wouldn't be Christian in name, but people would look at us and say, oh, I know where your treasure really is. I know who the king of your heart is. I pray, Jesus, that it would point to you. Our words, our actions, our lives would point to you. And we pray these things in your name. Amen.